I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. There are likely fewer areas in which popular opinion and the views of economists diverge as much as the issue of international trade. Economists tend to overwhelmingly favor free trade between countries. For example, in a poll of leading economists by the University of Chicago, 85% agreed with the statement, freer trade improves productive efficiency and offers consumers better choices. And in the long run, these gains are much larger than any effects on employment. And none of the other 15% disagreed. They either said they were uncertain or did not answer. Contrast this with what we hear from both Democratic and Republican politicians about protecting American companies from unfair international competition and promoting buy American policies. There's a long history of debate over free trade. My guest today on Econofact Chats, Doug Irwin of Dartmouth College, is a foremost scholar of that history. Among his books are Free Trade Under Fire, Against the Tide, an Intellectual History of Free Trade, and Clashing Over Commerce, a History of U.S. Trade Policy, which both The Economist and Foreign Affairs magazines recognize as one of their best books of the year. Doug, welcome to Econofact Chats. Thanks for having me, Michael. Oh, it's great to have you on. Doug, as you know, there's a quote that's attributed to Abraham Lincoln, although it might be apocryphal, where in which he said, I do not know much about the tariff, but I know this much. When we buy manufactured goods abroad, we get the goods and the foreigner gets the money. When we buy the manufactured goods at home, we get both the goods and the money. Do you disagree with Honest Abe? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. There's some debate about whether he actually said that, and it probably is apocryphal, but certainly um, uh, a lot of people during his time in the mid-19th century believed that. This is a time when the U.S. was largely an agrarian country. We are exporting agricultural products to buy imports of manufactured goods, and the question arose, well, why can't we just make these manufactured goods at home? Wouldn't that be better? Um, and so we still see that sentiment today in terms of uh, Buy America policies that the Biden administration has wanted. And I think what it misses out, well, there are two elements to it. One is how do you get the goods and what happens with the money? Um, I think what that logic sort of doesn't take into account is that trade is actually a way of getting the goods. Uh, so we can either produce things directly ourselves. Um, we could produce our smartphones here in the U.S. We could ask the question, at what cost could we do that? But another way of getting goods is to export something uh, and trade for them, buy them through imports. Um, we as individuals make this decision every day of our life. Um, for most of us, fortunately, we know we're going to have dinner. The question is, do we make it ourselves or do we go out to a restaurant? Well, when you go out to a restaurant, you're indirectly acquiring those goods in some sense. You're just doing it through trade. You worked all day, you earn the income and you, you buy that food. So that's the first part about uh, how do you get goods? Um, trade is an indirect way of getting those goods. Uh, the second point is what happens with money. 
do we keep the money at home when we just buy at home? Well, as you know, as an international finance economist, um, when we buy, say, goods from China, we're handing them a whole bunch of dollars to buy those goods, but they don't have much use for dollars in China. So those dollars actually come back to us. They come back to us in terms of buying U.S. goods uh, or often in terms of buying U.S. assets and uh, treasury bills and things of that sort. So the dollars do come back to us. So I think the, uh, the whole quotation is sort of a false distinction. When you mentioned that we could also produce goods on our own. You and I are both in New England. We could make pineapples in New England. We could grow them here, but they'd be fantastically expensive. And maybe it's better that we export educational services. So while we're quoting great historical figures, let's move on to John Maynard Keynes. In 1933, at the nadir of the Great Depression, he made a more sophisticated argument against free trade. He wrote, a considerable degree of international specialization is necessary, but over an increasingly wide range of industrial products and perhaps of agricultural products also, I have become doubtful whether the economic loss of national self-sufficiency is great enough to outweigh the other advantages. Most modern processes of mass production can be performed in most countries and climates with almost equal efficiency. Do you also disagree with one of the 20th century's greatest economist? Uh, uh, well, um, maybe in terms of that quote, yes, I will. But let me first of all, just say that I have enormous respect for Keynes. And actually, it's true in the during the Great Depression, he was sort of pessimistic about uh, trade and free trade in particular. Um, and he made another argument against free trade at this time saying that, uh, you know, if we have sort of fixed exchange rates, um, and we have unemployment, uh, a tariff might be a way of uh, reflating demand and, and getting the economy going again. But Prior to the Great Depression in the uh, 1920s and, and before, he was vociferously in favor of free trade. He dismissed the employment argument against free trade. Um, so he's, he changes his view depending on the circumstances, which is uh, uh, in many cases uh, appropriate. But in terms of this particular quote, um, we actually have you know, uh, actual evidence, empirical evidence that this is factually false. Um, yes, there's been a convergence of productivity levels in manufacturing across countries, but it's just not the case that you can produce anything anywhere in the world with equal efficiency. Um, just think about uh, how great Toyota has been in terms of improving the productivity of so many auto workers, auto uh, producers around the world. And so the basic insight is that um, you know, there's tremendous variation in uh, productivity levels uh, within an industry. Um, and competition is the force that sort of drives um, uh, firms to improve themselves. And if you, if you pursue this policy of national self-sufficiency, which Keynes sort of uh, very quickly says, you know, won't have really any efficiency effects. Well, just think about some countries that have done that in the past, whether it's uh, India uh, for much of the uh, uh, 1950s, 60s, and 70s, when they cut themselves off from world markets and they had a lot of manufacturing, but it was very inefficient. So um, we know that uh, if you limit trade, you limit competition. And when you limit competition, you're going to limit the pressure on firms to improve their productivity. So it's not the case that every country can produce things equally efficiently. And if you cut yourself off from trade, that won't have an impact on the efficiency with which you produce goods. So you're bringing these uh, 19th century uh, arguments into the present day by considering the arguments that we are hearing in the present day. Let me give you one more chance to disagree with a famous historical figure. Alexander Hamilton thought it was important to protect American manufacturing in the early days of the Republic to give those companies and firms a chance to grow. This is often called the infant industry argument for protectionism. So I take it you disagree with the person who's the subject of 
one of the most popular Broadway musicals in recent memory as well. Well, you want to set me up against these uh, great figures. So let me just begin by saying I'm actually a huge fan of Hamilton, have been so for a very long time, well before it became fashionable with Lin-Manuel Miranda and the uh, musical. Um, in fact, uh, when that uh, Broadway musical came out, um, I was one of the first to get tickets at, at face value. I didn't wait until the, you know, the popular demand drove those ticket prices up uh, and uh, saw it in one of the first few months. It was a great musical and, of course, a great figure. Maybe you should have gotten lots and lots of tickets and then you could have sold them at a great profit. That would have been the economist <laughs> thing to do. That's right. Well, unfortunately, I didn't anticipate that uh, some, you know, historical figure would become uh, so popular on Broadway. Um, but at any rate, uh, so I have great respect for Hamilton. And what's interesting about him is uh, he wrote in 1791 this very famous uh, report on manufacturers um, for that was had been requested by Congress. Um, and he was Treasury Secretary at the time. This is very early on in U.S. history. Uh, we didn't really have much manufacturing in the U.S. He wanted to build it up to some extent. And his argument for doing so was very sophisticated. Um, he had uh, incredible intellect, and he makes one of the best arguments you could make uh, for building up manufacturing. I think it's important to remember the context in which he was writing. But one of the things he says is, yes, America has this disadvantage in producing manufactured goods, say, compared to Europe. But he said, the, the biggest problem is we don't have a level playing field that uh, other countries, primarily in Europe, support their manufacturer, manufacturing industries. So our industries can't compete on equal terms. So it's almost sort of a reciprocity argument um, that uh, we have to uh, help out our manufacturers because other countries are helping out theirs. And it wasn't directly an argument for protection because he does say in his report, if other countries didn't have these sort of industrial policies or these subsidies, then we wouldn't need them uh, either. Um, but he did say, you know, we needed to uh, help out our domestic manufacturers, but he did say two interesting things. He, he never wanted protection through tariffs. He wanted to encourage those industries through subsidies. And uh, the argument of, of using tariffs versus subsidies is a um, sort of very subtle one, but an important one. When you use tariffs, you're sort of cutting yourself off from world markets to some extent, and, and those domestic protected firms may not be internationally competitive. But when you provide subsidies, you're providing encouragement for more production, and the chance that you, um, those industries will become competitive may be a little bit higher because you're not insulating them from competition quite as much. So I asked you to disagree with Hamilton, Keynes, and Lincoln. I'm not sure that was a fair way to start this out. So let's switch to someone you do agree with. Adam Smith, is considered the founder of economics. And he makes the case for free trade in his book, The Wealth of Nations. What are Smith's arguments? Well, Smith, once again, is in this pantheon with, uh, I'd say, you know, Hamilton Keynes, uh, maybe Honest Abe in a different way. But, um, you know, The Wealth of Nations is a tremendous book, uh, once again, very sophisticated uh, and uh, intellectually challenging. And he, he makes uh, sort of two parts to the case for free trade. One is the positive case uh, for trade, um, in which he says, uh, talks about the division of labor, um, specialization across countries, um, the efficiency gains that will come from that. Um, so that's sort of a, a very standard uh, way of thinking about it. But he also makes, and this is not quite as appreciated, a negative case against protectionism. Um, and what he says is that, uh, you know, when you protect uh, your domestic market from foreign competition, uh, you're going to be limiting trade, and there's an opportunity cost to that. And what he means by in terms of opportunity cost is you're not really creating new industries or creating new wealth for the country. You're diverting where those existing resources are going to be used. So 
to use the, the pineapple example in New England that you uh, referred to earlier. Yes, we could here in New Hampshire and Massachusetts devote some share of the labor force to uh, trying to grow pineapples, if you will. But we're gonna be taking that, those workers away from other activities that they might be better suited to doing uh, for the region as a whole, uh, and therefore will make uh, New England poorer. Um, so he's, uh, once again, very sophisticated. And, and uh, you mentioned the a book that I wrote called Against the Tide and Intellectual History of Free Trade. I really tried to push this idea that um, Smith was sophisticated in his argument against protection protectionism. And um, I'm gratified that when Paul Krugman reviewed the book for the Journal of Economic Literature, he said that it convinced him that um, Smith was more important than Ricardo uh, in terms of making the case for freer trade. And that's exactly was my view. And I tried to state that in the book. David Ricardo, of course, the early 19th century, great British, uh, great British economist. So you talked about sort of productivity. And at the heart of the arguments for free trade is the idea of what's called comparative advantage. A mathematician challenged the Nobel laureate Paul Samuelson to name one idea in social sciences that was both true and not trivial. Samuelson said comparative advantage fit that mold because thousands of important and intelligent people have never been able to grasp the doctrine for themselves or to believe it after it was explained to them. Doug, can you explain comparative advantage so our important and intelligent listeners can both grasp it and believe it? Um, I can certainly give it a try, but it is a, a tricky concept. In fact, uh, I just mentioned Paul Krugman. He has this delightful essay, which you can find by Googling it, called Ricardo's Difficult Idea. on why. And the point of the essay is on why so many um, policy analysts can't seem to get this idea of, uh, of comparative advantage. Um, the way I sort of think about it is uh, this is a concept that applies both to uh, countries, as uh, David Ricardo, who you mentioned um, first, uh, came up with the idea, but also applies at sort of the household level or the individual level in terms of how we allocate our time and our efforts. Um, we do so along the lines of comparative advantage, not necessarily absolute advantage. So I think about uh, my household. Uh, my wife is uh, better than me, more efficient than I am in doing just about everything. Um, in doing in cooking, uh, she's a better cook. Uh, she, when she goes to the grocery store, she's very efficient and just buys what we need. Whereas I tend to put a, a lot of things in the cart that we don't necessarily need or want just because I'm attracted to them. Um, she probably is even better than me at mowing the lawn and other things. Now you might say, well, if uh, we allocated our activity based on uh, absolute advantage, She's more better. She's better. She's more efficient. She should do everything. That sounds good. <laughs> uh, yeah, it does. And I could reap the benefits of that. Um, but, uh, you know, just because I'm inferior in, in most activities doesn't mean I shouldn't be doing anything. Uh, and so the way I allocate my time is I do the things where, as I put it, my margin of inferiority is least. And that's the idea of comparative advantage. Um, so there's some things that I'm really bad at and some things I'm just a little bit bad at at least relative to her. And so uh, I do the things where the outcomes may not be uh, uh, quite as bad as if I had done them. So that's in some sense the idea. So in some ways, it's kind of unfortunate that your wife understands the difference between comparative advantage and absolute advantage. Otherwise, you'd get more time off. Right, exactly. But then again, I may not be married uh, too long. In <laughs> so, Consumption uh, basket, right. 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 
but just, you know, this applies to countries as well. Countries don't have to be the most efficient at doing uh, everything. Um, there are many developing countries that are well behind the technological frontier, but once again, their margin of inferiority is least in certain activities, say textiles, and so they can uh, do very well through trade by exporting those goods that they have a comparative advantage in. So, so far we've been talking about what happens overall in an economy and the economic result that overall trade benefits an economy. But even David Ricardo, who we referred to a few times in the early 19th century, he recognized that trade creates winners and losers. The case for free trade is largely based on the benefits to the overall economy, but what about those who lose their jobs or lose out because of international competition? Well, it's certainly the case that some workers are going to lose their jobs because of uh, imports coming in. Uh, not all imports. Some imports are we don't produce at home or are necessary for our, uh, to keep our uh, producers efficient in terms of intermediate goods. Um, but, you know, workers are losing in, uh, jobs all the time uh, because of various factors, including technological change, shifts in demand, consumer tastes, the business cycle. Um, and trade creates uh, a lot of jobs as well. It's not just a, a job destroyer. So the way I sometimes think about it is that, um, uh, you know, trade both creates jobs and destroys jobs. If we take the steel industry, for example, um, imports of uh, foreign steel have probably uh, made the industry a little bit smaller than it otherwise would be and taken away some steel jobs. But those imports um, also create jobs uh, in terms of keeping our downstream uh, steel using firms much more efficient. Um, so if we try to protect those steel jobs by raising tariffs, um, uh, we may be losing jobs by raising the cost of steel to uh, downstream users. Yeah, one of our most popular memos is by Katie Russ of UC Davis and Lydia Cox. And they show what I found to be a really uh, shocking result, that for every job in the United States involved in making steel, there are 80 jobs involved in using steel. So if you make steel more expensive, you might be helping some of those people who are making steel, but you're hurting lots and lots of people who need steel in the production process. And then also, as you were mentioning, a lot of what's going on is automation. It's not trade. So trade is a convenient scapegoat for these things, but it's not always the case that it's trade and trade alone, or even majority trade that's affecting these things. Yeah, just that's a great memo that by Katie that you mentioned. And uh, just another fact on the steel industry, in the 1980s, it took about 10 worker hours to produce a ton of steel. Now it takes one worker hour to produce a ton of steel. So we're producing basically the same amount of steel as we did in the past, but um, the number of workers employed has gone way down. Once again, as you point out, not because of uh, imports, but because of technological change, we've just become much more efficient in producing steel. Yeah, we have one of the very first memos we posted was by David Deming at Harvard. And he was showing the difference between what's called value added, like how much is being produced in manufacturing and employment. And employment was going down, but value added was very steady and that's automation. So there are a lot of things going on besides international trade. But as you and I both know, trade policy is inherently very political. And there's a lot of money in lobbying for provisions of trade rules that benefit particular industries or even particular companies. And the classic problem here is that there are concentrated costs and diffuse benefits of many aspects of trade and globalization more generally. Given this, Doug, what do you see as the chances for free trade? Well, uh, another book of mine that you mentioned was uh, is Clashing Over Commerce, A History of U.S. Trade Policy, where I go over 
230 or 40 years of, of US trade policy history. And I have to say that uh, the US now is about as open as it's ever been in terms of international trade. We've had pretty high trade barriers in the past, 19th century we had pretty high tariffs. Um, and uh, those tariffs have really come down a lot since World War II. Uh, we do have uh, trade agreements such as the WTO and other free trade agreements that keep uh, formal trade barriers at relatively low levels. So there's always, uh, you'll never get to uh, uh, zero tariffs or free trade uh, in all likelihood. You know, Adam Smith recognized that a long time ago. But, um, and it's always a political challenge too, uh, to keep markets open um, when there's pressure to protect certain sectors, uh, jobs or, or production. But we're in a reasonably good place, I think, in terms of uh, how open the economy is and how exposed to international competition we are that keeps our manufacturers and other producers on their toes and competitive and uh, productive. So we've covered a very long span of time here in talking about the ideas about trade. And your book, Against the Tide, an Intellectual History of Free Trade, traces out this thinking in a very nice way. To what extent, Doug, do you think that economic analysis on this most central of issues shaped events? And to what extent do you think events influenced the way economists thought about these issues? I think it's much more the latter, that uh, events drive the way economists uh, view things. So um, if we, go, we talked about David Ricardo earlier on. If we go back to the early 19th century Britain, um, Parliament at that time, right after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, when Britain was sort of re-entering global commerce once again, having defeated Napoleon, they were worried about uh, a lot of imports of grain. So they passed something called the Corn Laws which are restrictive measures to keep out uh, foreign grain. And that's actually what triggered uh, David Ricardo and many other of the classical economists to write about trade issues and, and point out the benefits from trade. So uh, those laws were eventually repealed, uh, but it wasn't uh, because of what the economists were writing so much as uh, 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 different economic interest groups in Britain were uh, trying to push policy in a different way. When you look at uh, US trade policy too, for most of its history, with relatively high tariffs, um, the views of economists were ignored. Um, when the Great Depression came along, um, economists took, a, as we, you quoted uh, John Maynard Keynes earlier, took a little bit more of a dim view uh, on trade. Um, once again, it wasn't that economists' views changed and therefore uh, trade policies became more protective, say, in the 1930s during the Great Depression, but the Great Depression had an impact on the way economists viewed things. So there's always an interaction between sort of events and the ideas of economists. But I think um, it's mainly that uh, changing circumstances changes the way we view um, uh, certain policies. Well, we talked about Adam Smith, David Ricardo, Alexander Hamilton, Abe Lincoln, John Maynard Keynes, Paul Samuelson. This is clearly the widest swath of economists over the longest period of time in any Econofact Chats episode. And what I think is really nice and interesting about what you've done is that for a variety of reasons, these topics are still very relevant. Economists are still talking about these things. And it's been very useful, I think, for us to consider this in this kind of historical context. So thank you very much, Doug, for talking with me today. It's been a lot of fun. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. You can subscribe on our site to our newsletter 
that will let you know when we publish new memos and new podcast episodes. Please feel free to share this podcast and our memos with friends, colleagues, and on social media. The Conifact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.